you have a Bible with you this morning, uh, please open it to the book of Exodus. If you don't have one with you, uh, you can certainly borrow one from us, and you can find a Bible in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find Exodus chapter 1 on page 42 of that Bible. As Josh has already said this morning, I would like to reiterate, please excuse our dust and um, the, the disarray that you find our church in this morning. Um, we, in purchasing this building a couple of years ago, knew that this day was coming where we were going to have to uh, rip out bathrooms and put bathrooms in. And, and this is being done, believe it or not, for our comfort and for our good so that we would have more room and it, it, we wouldn't be so cramped, in, in the, especially in the bathroom situation, in the foyer in general. And so um, just like anything else in this world, though, uh, if, if you're trying to fix something or you're trying to make something, you're always going to make a mess first. This is simply the way that this world works. It's entropy. Uh, anytime you try to collect things together, you've got to put more energy into it. Make a cake, you're going to make some bad uh, mess with dishes and, and flour is going to be everywhere. At least if you make it in my house, apparently that is unavoidable. Uh, if, if you are making an omelet, as they say, you're going to have to break some eggs. And what you see in the back are a bunch of broken eggs, and hopefully we can make something approaching an omelet. Um, unless you use that liquid egg stuff, but you should really stay away from that. That's no good. Um, last week, we, we began to talk about Exodus and the main symbols that we find in the book of Exodus. Uh, we talked about how it is indeed a picture of our redemption. It is meant to show how God is going to overcome our slavery, overcome our death, and how he will redeem us even from those things. But it is also the picture of positiveness and the building of a nation. God is going to take a people who do not know him and he is going to make them his own. He will build a nation. He will be true to his word to Abraham to make him the father of a nation, specifically a nation that God himself has blessed. But in order to make that, there will be dust, there will be debris, there will be destruction along the way. This beginning chapter is a chapter that talks to us about the kind of difficulties God will face as he does this great work. This is not a bug of the plan, but a feature of it. As we come now to the first chapter of Exodus, we have our introduction to the major characters in that plan, at least in the book of Exodus. While we don't have Moses quite yet, we do have Pharaoh, we do have God, and we do have the people of Israel. These are the main characters. And what we will find in this chapter is the theme that we will find throughout the book of Exodus. God is indeed faithful to his people and faithful and true to his word. Even when he faces incredibly high obstacles, he will be good to what he has spoken to his people. And we might even want to rephrase that and say because of the major obstacles that face God in carrying out his plan, he will be ever more shown to be faithful to what he has spoken. So let us consider the first chapter of the book of Exodus. This world is a messy place, and as God attempts to bring order and peace and prosperity out of that messiness, there are people who will fight against him, people who love violence, people who desire chaos, people who seek to benefit from sin. And so salvation, the bringing of order and truth and love, will also bring the destruction of those who fight against it. We see the beginnings of the battle lines being drawn here in Exodus chapter 1. If you would, read with me. Beginning in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. 
Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. And come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And all the work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And the king of Egypt said to Hebrew, the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and all the people and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of our God. First thing I would like to draw your attention to this morning is the Father's faithfulness. Is the Father's faithfulness. Hebrew narrative isn't known for being very straightforward in describing the things you ought to get from it. If you watch a movie or you listen to movie critics, at times we talk about this almost every time we start a Hebrew narrative because it's important to understand. If you listen to movie critics, what they'll do is they'll say, a good movie will show you, not tell you, what you ought to think and what you ought to feel. Hebrew narrative is almost built for that kind of thing. It rarely will just flat out tell you the thing that it thinks that you should get from it, but rather thinks that you should, in reading the text itself, come to the right conclusions. It is very much a show, not tell kind of text. Now, nowhere in this text does it come straight out and say how God was being faithful to his people. Clearly, the text could have said that, but it doesn't. But nevertheless, that is quite clearly the implication of especially those first seven verses. Very immediately, the fact that all 12 tribes of Jacob, who is renamed Israel in the last part of Genesis, all 12 tribes, all 12 sons and their children have found their way down to Egypt. It's a sign of God's faithfulness. Not only his faithfulness to his promise to Abraham in Genesis 15 that he would take them down to Egypt, but faithfulness to get them there, to be a shield and a protector over them. It was a famine that drove them there. God's kindness and his faithfulness to his people is seen in the fact that they even live before this famine. But secondly, and just as interestingly, 
In verse 5, we read that the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Now, that doesn't sound like it's too terribly many, and it doesn't sound like it's all that important either. I will make some importance out of it, and I'm going to try to back it up as much as I possibly can. Not every number you come to in Scripture is going to be important. You're going to get back in First and Second Chronicles these, these listing of the members of certain tribes and certain lineages, and there's going to be 22,874 of, of this tribe and things like that. And, and when you get exact numbers like that, it's probably not meant to be terribly symbolic, but nice round numbers tend to be symbolic, especially when it's made up of numbers that occur quite frequently in Scripture, like 3, 7, 10, 12, 40, things like that. I think that 70 persons going down to Egypt is quite important. If you go back to Genesis 10, and you're going to find that there are numerous links between the beginning of Exodus and what has already been said in Genesis, which we will show a lot of today. If you go back to Genesis 10, after the flood, God allows Abraham, or excuse me, Noah's three sons to multiply on the earth. And it lists out what scholars call the table of nations, and they spread out throughout the world. And it just so happens that there are 70 of those children that spread out among the world. These are the nations of the world. By listing 70 people who go down to Egypt here, I think what the author of Exodus is doing, what Moses is trying to do is say, this is another redemption. This is a picture of God making the world new again. Previously, he had done it through cursing the world. He had wiped the world clean with the exception of Noah and his family. And now, not through a curse, but through a blessing, he is going to make a new creation. This is backed up by the very next thing that is said in verse 7. It's often the case that Hebrew narrative is not seeking to tell you what is going on, but rather to show you. But when it gets around to telling you, it really does tell you, right? There is absolutely nothing that, to, that you could possibly miss in verse 7 if you read any of it to get the implication of what's being said here. Five times, words or phrases are used to make it very clear that there is a population explosion of Hebrew people in Egypt after the 70 came down. Listen to the words that are used. They're fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied, grew exceedingly strong. The land was filled with them. These are the very words that we find in a passage of Genesis, as a matter of fact. In Genesis 1, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, fill the land. This is indeed a picture of God being faithful to his promise to Abraham to make his descendants as many as the stars of the sky, but also in Genesis 12 to reverse the curse. I'm going to reverse the thing that has made a mess of this earth. I'm doing that through a new creation, and you are going to be my new creation. The creation mandate is going forward. Seventy people seems a symbolic way of saying that there is this new creation here. God is being faithful to his promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. He's being faithful to the promise of Abraham to make his descendants many. He's being faithful to his promise to protect them and make a shield about them. He is being faithful. If you get anything from these first verses, it's that even though God seems absent from his people, nevertheless, his faithfulness is over them. He's caring for them, watching over them. You might say, well, all this new creation language seems to fall a little flat because we, again, know how the story ends. Many times today we're going to talk about the fact that we know where the story of Exodus goes. And 
we know that this particular creation, if this is supposed to be a new creation, ends quite a lot like the old creation did. The people will go before their God, but they will rebel. They will reject him. They will turn back to the gods of death and the gods of Egypt and the gods of the desert that they knew. But even though they end that way, it doesn't mean that God is being unfaithful. Rather, it shines his faithfulness all the more. Remember that while these events are real, they are symbols of a better reality that God is going to bring about. That this is not an exactly new creation, but simply symbolizes the new creation, doesn't do anything to the intention of God to bring about that new creation. As a matter of fact, the very, the very essence of this is that they don't live up to the symbol they're meant to portray. And because they don't live up to it, it means that we ought to look, because God is faithful, to a better new creation that will one day come. That is nothing less than Christ. They are both symbolic of and the recipients of God's faithfulness to his people and his promises. They do not fulfill those promises, but they are marks that this is indeed what God is doing. And we need that. We need to remember in Scripture all the times that we read of God being faithful to his people, especially when the the people who are here might not realize how faithful God is really truly being to them. In the midst of our own trials and tribulations and troubles, if if you're not already settled on this, it's going to be really hard to gin up faith, to believe that while life is going sideways for you, God is forevermore pointing forward in faithfulness for you. It's going to be hard in the middle of difficulties to start to think, oh, God really is truly faithful to me. These are things that we come back to Scripture and read of time and time again because we are meant to have these things down when we enter into trials and difficulties so that we will know God is indeed faithful. These people in Exodus, the the people who are multiplied and many here are a testimony to that. They will see more powerful miracles than you would ever dare dream of. They will see God and experience a salvation that is majestic and clear before their very eyes. The mud from the bottom of the sea will barely be dry on their feet before tribulations come and they turn back away from it. These things are written so that you will see God's faithfulness to his people even during what will be a terrible and harrowing ordeal for them so that we might be filled with faith. Not something that's based simply on our wishes and our dreams, but that is based on the revelation of God, how he has worked in history, and the surety of his word. Trust in the faithfulness of the Father. We need that, because secondly, the next thing we see is the foe's fury. The foe's fury. Anytime God seeks to bless people, It will always bring the worst out in those who stand against the promises of God. And here, Pharaoh, and by extension, the entire nation of Egypt, are those very enemies. Let's be clear. We see many, many things and how they are enemies to God here. First, Pharaoh is demonic. The very wording of verse 10 implies this. Again, we reminded that there are many links already back to creation and back to Genesis 1 here. And when we hear Pharaoh say this, come, let us deal shrewdly with them, we're reminded of Satan in a couple of different ways. One, that Satan always likes to sort of ape God. He likes to pretend he's God and make like he's God. So just as God said, let us make man in our image, Pharaoh looks out at his people and says, let us, let us deal shrewdly. 
just as the serpent was the most cunning of all the creatures that God has made and sought after God blessed Adam and Eve to drag them away from that blessing. So now Pharaoh, hearing the blessing and knowing the blessing and seeing before him the blessing of God on these people, seeks to lead them away into destruction. Shrewdness is nothing but a pretend wisdom. Makes a play as being wise, but in reality it's anything but. In the end, as it stands against God's plan and desire, it is great in both its foolishness and its abject stupidity. You won't win. We are tempted, I think, to believe that we are never the kind of people who would be misled. We wouldn't fall for what happened to Adam and Eve, and we probably wouldn't fall as Egyptians to the kind of mindset that Pharaoh puts forward here. But we should be reminded that we have an incredible ability to be misled and to be misled by demonic people. In John 8, Jesus is facing children of Abraham, and he has declared himself to be the true seed of Abraham, and, and they, they have this issue with Jesus, and they say, hey, I don't know why you're saying that we were ever slaves. I don't know why you're talking to us like this. We, we are children of Abraham and even of God. And Jesus has words for them, realizing that they have rejected him as their Messiah and does not accept the claims that they have made. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. Sons of Abraham in John's gospel were doing nothing more than Pharaoh is here. He is a son of Satan, the devil's own child, because he does the very work that Satan does. He misleads people. He lies to them, making up this fake scenario about what the Hebrews might do in the future so that they could oppress them. He lies to them. He underhandedly deals with anything that God might give to them. He leads them down a false path of security, saying, if you follow my plan, we can, we can hem this problem that we've got. We can cut it off, and we can make sure that it never comes to fruition. We are to remember the warning that we had just a couple of weeks ago in Romans 16. Paul tells us to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles because by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. What the Pharaoh is doing here is telling the Egyptians precisely the thing they want to hear. Not only can you have the good things that you want, but because I'm going to make the Hebrews work as slaves, I can get them to take away some of the pain and the problems of your everyday life. You don't need to do this work. We can make the Hebrews do it. You don't need to worry about it. We can make the Hebrews handle it. And all that, at the same time, we're, we're taking away military threats in the future. This is smooth talk and flattery. Paul knows that we are susceptible to it. You need to know that you are likely susceptible to it. When people tell you what you want to hear, when the talk is easy and it goes down smooth, you need to be very, very careful about what you are hearing. It could be nothing more than your death. The foe in his fury shows he's demonic, and in the foe's fury he clings to his power. The real threat to Pharaoh and to the people of Egypt is simply a loss of their worldly power. It's a loss 
of their own ability to set their course, control their fate and their future. They punish people out of fear of losing something that they might not lose or they never even had in the first place. Notice how all of this is done out of fear of this imagined scenario. If war breaks out and they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land, there's no evidence that any of that would be true. There's actually evidence that the Hebrews were incredibly faithful. The whole reason why the people of Egypt were in a position of power was because God sent the Hebrew people to them. If not for Joseph, they would have gone the way of every nation around them. Their power was given to them by the hand of God. And yet, they're worried about losing that very hand. This, too, is a mark of Satan. And of all those who stand against God's people, they cling to their power. Power to make decisions, power to navigate their future, power to make other people do what they want them to do. In the New Testament, we are told explicitly that you are not to be like that. Jesus says, you know, you look at the Gentiles and those who lead the Gentiles lord it over them. But you are never to be like that. You are to serve one another. Even I, he said, came not to take advantage of people, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Paul talks about the need that we have not only to lay down our lives for those in authority over us, whether in the church, but also even those pagan people outside of the church. And Peter warns pastors, you serve another in heaven. We are all tempted to fight for every bit of power we have and every single walk of life we've got. Whether it's in business, whether it's because we are an employer and what we say ought to go, whether it's because in families, whether you have authority, you want to hang on to that authority, or whether you are under authority and you want to buck the system, whether it's in politics or even in the church, we want to cling on to the power that we want, that we imagine that we have. But this is not the way of the church but of the enemy. Third, we see that Pharaoh is seeking fame. In his fury, he seeks his own fame. The use of their labor is to build up the cities of Ramses and Pithom, and that's probably tied back again to the building up of the Tower of Babel to make a name for themselves. After all, these cities that were built, these store cities, were cities that were, were created so that Egypt could put their commodities and their natural resources into and then station garrisons around, armed garrisons, to make sure that they were secure forever. This was something that only nations with immense amount of natural resources could even think about needing to do. And then when they do it, they had to have a great military to do it. It was a way for them to build the prestige, not only of the nation, but specifically the king. And the fact that he sends slaves to do it is an indication that he is indeed trying to great, greatly improve his name among the nations. Yet, we cannot be these kind of people. We can't seek fame. It is a work and a tool of the enemy. Seek anonymity. And I don't mean that you skirt the responsibility for what you say, or that you, you don't take accountability for what you do. You don't want to be anonymous throwing darts and arrows at people. But you do want to be anonymous kind of in life. Why make a name for yourself? Why be great in the eyes of the world? Seek to be last, to be least. Let your giving be in secret. Let the things you do be hidden because God always sees. And 
the last, and the kingdom of Christ shall be first. Lastly, well, not lastly, but fourthly, he is demonic. He shows his fury through violence. The only way that they can hold on to their power is finally and ultimately to use their power. And they're more than happy to do so. He calls upon the people to oppress and enslave the Hebrew men and women, and they don't seem to have any sort of tact in saying no. They don't seem any compulsion about doing it. They're happy and gladly enslave them and make their lives miserable, even more miserable. All the time, it's multiplying. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work. Notice they, not just Pharaoh, but the people of Egypt, they ruthlessly did this. Again, at the end of verse 14, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. They were happy to have the power to be able to force people to do things. Killing children? At first, it seems like this is probably a bit too far. Pharaoh seems to want to keep this secret. This is why he goes to the midwives and says, when they're on the birth stool, kill them. Notice before it was all plurals. Let us do this. We ought to do this as a nation. But, but here he is going somewhat in secret to these midwives. And he's saying, listen, when, when you're on the birth stool, when, when people can't really see what's going on in the chaos of birth, kill the child. He doesn't make an outlandish command for everyone to do this. He goes specifically to these women. And you'll notice when they come back and they say, they're vigorous. They gave birth. We couldn't help it. He doesn't say, well, then why didn't you kill the child afterward? Killing the child afterward didn't work because he wanted it to be secret. But when it didn't work, the naked, absolute power comes out, and he simply flat out commands his people to kill every male child that is born. You're to throw it, chuck it into the Nile. This is demonic. We have pictures throughout the history of Scripture and then through the history of church of violence coming upon children. We're reminded of Bethlehem and what King Herod did. This is what people who stand against the kingdom of God do. This is the power of the world. Ultimately, it is violence and it is death. We need to remember that Church is never advanced by the power of this age. The power of the state, the power of the sword, the power of might in any way, shape, or form of this world is not how the church will ever possibly go forward. The kingdom of God is not grown by these things. It's not multiplied by these things. We can celebrate Supreme Court passing down judgments that are right and true and good, and we ought to support those things, and we ought to applaud those things when they happen. But you ought never to confuse that with growth of the kingdom of God. No decision by the Supreme Court can ever hinder or help the growth of the kingdom of God. God grows it at his own rate and pace. If the gates of Hades can't stand against it, the Supreme Court's not going to stand against it. But it's also not going to help it. The kingdom of God goes forward not through the power of the world, not through showing power, not through the use of power, certainly not by violence. But it goes forward with the proclamation of the world the word, and godly living by its people. Lastly, of course, all of his efforts are futile. His short-term plans are ruined. Not exactly sure what he was thinking when he said, 
hey, these people are getting too many, so we're just going to work them. Um, I'm not sure if he understands how all of that works, but simply working people hard does not mean that they're not going to make more babies. And so it happens that he, he seems like he's using that simply as an excuse to put them into forced labor, but then he actually does realize that there's a problem here. His short-term plans are ruined. It doesn't work. Putting them into labor, they still multiply. They're still doing well. The long-term plan is also just as problematic. Remember, the problem was that they're going to turn on us. They're going to harm us, and then they're going to leave. And so we're going to oppress them. In the end, oppressing them makes them cry out to God, who hears their cries, who shows up, who harms the people of Egypt, and leads his people out. The very thing that they're worried about is the very thing that they bring about by their own plans and actions. This is written all over. The very thing that people fear is the very thing that they're going to be given by the hand of God, not because God is specifically going to hand it out. It's just the natural occurrence of your sin. All these desires, all these plans, all these efforts are futile. In the end, those who stand against God's promises will fall. This too is important for us to hear, not only to build up our faithfulness in God and to trust him and to see his faithfulness to us, but to also be reminded lest we stand on the wrong side of God's good grace and fall under condemnation. Be assured, if you are standing against the good grace and plan of God, if you stand against the things that God wants to have happen, any efforts that you make to stop those plans will be put to an end. They will become nothing but the sand of the Egyptian desert, and you too might find yourself cursed and without hope. Do not find yourself with the enemy's fury, but standing against it. That brings us then to the third point, the family's fealty, their loyalty to God. We know that not everyone is going to respond with favor and faith. We know that many of the people of Israel, when they are brought out, are going to rebel and reject. But we have within this chapter these two wonderful women, Shifra and Puah, who stand against Pharaoh to do what is right to God. And even before that, we are shown that even though Pharaoh is seeking to oppress the people of God, that the family's fealty is to be shown to the Father even in their suffering. We might think that God is going to take care of the suffering that's being shown to the people here. The people don't really have to make it very long. It's a handful of chapters before Moses shows up. He shows up in chapter 7, but that's 80 years at least down the road. When Moses first stands before Pharaoh, he's 80 years old, and Moses ain't born yet. By the time they ruthlessly treat the Israelites as slaves, an entire generation is going to die before they ever hear the name of Moses, or at least Moses as the one who has returned to them. Those people who are waiting for God to relieve their suffering or relieve their pain, there will be some of those who are born and die knowing nothing but slavery and suffering. God's plan will even make their labor harder before it relieves it. It is the blessing of God that brings this hard labor upon them. It is God showing up and saying, I am going to make my people come out to me. Let my people go. That makes Pharaoh say, nah, they can make bricks without straw now. Thank you. This is part of the entropy of the world. Salvation requires suffering on your part. You you might not like it, but it requires it. Every day, we are told, Jesus didn't lie to you. He said, take up your cross, die to yourself, live for me. 
That is a metaphor that isn't meant to be taken literally, but it's certainly meant to be taken seriously. It is going to be painful. It is going to be difficult. To kill the flesh, to kill sin is hard work. It's ugly, and it's annoying, and it's just flat-out painful. You die daily to your own self, a self that cries out for its own desires and lusts to be filled, and you must tell it no. Daily crying out for its own importance, Daily crying out for these things that have, it's been fed for so long as it's being strangled to death and it's crying out and gasping and you have to continue to kill it and to continue to say no. Such dying is a pain. Even while it's a necessary pain, it's still a pain. You will suffer in this world. Salvation being brought to you will bring suffering. And know, know in your hearts that this is far removed even from the physical suffering that we find here. Friend, if you live in America, you need to understand, you will suffer in your salvation. That suffering will be your own personal desire to mortify your flesh and to find yourself faithful before God. It is unlikely in the highest that you will ever be persecuted the way the people were persecuted here or the way people are persecuted in other parts of the world. There are people who actually die for their faith. Let's be very clear before we start throwing out the word persecution when we talk about how we are persecuted. The state passing a law that you don't like is not persecution. It's an annoyance. And if you begin to think that that is what persecution actually looks like and this is how you're going to be persecuted for your faith, you're not actually ready for any type of persecution that's real and true. It doesn't mean that you're not going to die daily. It doesn't mean that you're not going to suffer. But it means we do need to be careful about making connections between the people of Israel and how the world rejects them and what is happening in our country today. The family's fealty is shown even through their suffering, but it's also shown in the fact that these two women fear God over men. These women are specifically mentioned for their fear of God. It was a precarious thing that they did. I think that we are to take their word with a grain of salt. I think that it might have been a half-truth, but it's clear that they must have done something that was other than what they said. Otherwise, there's no real reason for them to fear God. Perhaps they dragged their feet a little bit getting to the birth. Maybe they found out that their husband had asked them to do something right before they went, and they were like, well, I'm sure the baby can wait a couple of days. And then by the time they got there, lo and behold, it was already born. We don't know exactly what's going on, but it's, it's at best a stretch of the truth what they tell the Pharaoh. And he buys it, but they didn't know that. At some level, they knew that it is wrong to kill these children, even if the most powerful man in the world comes up to us and privately tells us to, even though he holds our lives in his hands, we will not do it because we fear God more than we fear men. Their lines are really clearly drawn. Let the babies live, fear God. Kill the babies, fear men. Sometimes ours as well. When that happens, the choice between sin and Savior, the choice between the applause of men and the glory of God, it would be best if you had already made up your decision. We oftentimes think that we would stand up and do what is right in an instant. We don't have any fortitude for it. We haven't thought through it. We haven't prepared ourselves for it. And if the Bible and Scripture is any indication, if the history of the church is any indication, if your own personal life is likely any indication, you are ill-prepared to stand up to true fear of man. Steal yourselves for that now. 
in the fear of God, friends, you are required to stand up to your enemies, which is hard. But even more so, more than what the women do here, you are also in the fear of God required to stand up to your friends. That is much harder. The family is first the family of God, and our fealty and our loyalty belongs first and foremost to him. Not only is their fealty shown in suffering and their fealty shown in fearing God, but their fealty is rewarded because they are given names. This is kind of an important bit. These two women are named. Pharaoh isn't his name. Pharaoh is just a name for a king. It's a title. It's like calling this guy Mr. all the way through. He's not given a name, but he is the key character. In the first half of the entire book of Exodus, he's the character. These women are named here, and they never come up again. It's, it's honestly like Scripture is going out of its way to say, Pharaoh is nothing. He, he's meaningless. Scripture doesn't even remember his Pharaoh, what's his name? I don't remember. It's not really all that important. God crushes him. But these women, these women are important. Remember the names, Shifra. And remember the name, Puah. Remember those names because they are important to God. Pharaoh is, in a sense, nothing but a character here. He's almost dehumanized. He's just a pawn. As powerful as he seems, as important as he seems to the world and appears to be in the world before God's plan, he's nothing but a pawn. But these women are cherished, given names, remembered and written for all eternity. Don't think for a moment because people care about you and people think you're a big deal that you are so to God. And the reverse is also true. Don't think for a moment because you are small in the big scheme of the world and even small in your little sphere of the world that God doesn't care much about you. There are many powerful men whose names 10,000 years from now you will not be able to remember, but these women have their names written down forever. Pharaoh, the greatest man in the world. These are two women. They're not even men, and they're not even important women. They're just midwives. God says no, but they will be recorded forever. Those who call upon the name of the Lord, the Lord knows you. He has your name written down. He watches over you. He cares for you. He loves you. And he will act to deliver you from all the trials and all the tribulations that you face. So do what these women do. Do what is the loyalty to God that is owed by his people. Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with your God. It's a good start for the Hebrews. For the Israelites here, things are going to get much worse before they get better. The enemy is going to have his day. His fury will be vented upon the people of God in all of its rage and in all of its anger. But God himself is the one who gives him that chance. Do your worst. Certainly does not mean that God is unaware or uncaring of their suffering, but that their suffering will aid, and aid his plan and prove the greatness of God. And that through their suffering, their redemption will be realized. And don't think for a second that you're going to escape unsinged from the wrath of Satan either. 
being cast down to earth, the book of Revelation says that his wrath is great for his time is short. That little statement holds everything we need to know. The wrath of Satan is great. He hates you. He wants to hurt you. He wants to bury you if he can. And he will do everything in his power to drag you down. But that statement also says his time is short. So hold on. Each day, you are one day closer to the redemption that is promised to you than you were the day before. Trust in the faithfulness of God. Show fealty and loyalty to him and wait. For the might of God and the death of Christ has dealt finally and fully with all of our enemies. Trust in him. Let us pray. Father, we do trust in your salvation. And I pray that we have heard well your word. This world in which we live is alluring in its power, its might, its majesty, and even its beauty. Our eyes and our hearts are drawn to it. You have, for those who believe in you, have pulled back the facade of what we see around us and have shown us the emptiness and the futility of it all. Let us find our hope in you. And having trusted in your deliverance, let us live as such a way to stand against the evil and malicious wrongs of this world, no matter what cost it comes to us. For you know us, you will remember us, and you will deliver us. We ask all these things in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.